Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms held wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good. Good morning. It's Monday, the 26th of September. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. I know, it's probably been years since anyone has sung that song to you, which just made me a little sad this morning when I thought about it, that, you know, you probably haven't heard that song sung to you in years, and no one has, like, I don't know, pulled on your toe under the under the covers and been like, hey, hey, it's time to rise and shine. So, you know, there you go. Up and at them today. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise to God. I mean, really, we could just stop right there. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So that's today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day. If you don't already receive it in your inbox, you can sign up for it at MyFaithRadio.com. And hey, let me encourage you to sign up today if you have not done so already. Join us. It starts today, our Reading Through the Bible Together study of First Peter. So again, sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. Every, um, as we look at First Peter... Um, over the course of the next several days, um, you know, I'm just mindful that every writer writes for a reason. Every every single time we talk to an author here on Mornings with Carmen, you know, I'm asking them like, you know, hey, you know, what what's sort of the itch you're trying to scratch? What's the question you're trying to answer? What provoked the writing of this book? Well, the the biblical writers are no different, right? They're authors. They wrote books for a reason, for a purpose, to scratch an itch, to answer a question, um, to fulfill a calling. So so Peter is addressing the particular concerns of the Christians of his day, um, the concerns of Christians in every generation, mindful that this isn't just any book. This is a book of the Bible, and the Bible is the living word of God. And so understanding what Peter meant in terms of what he was writing to the first audience of First Peter, and then what it means today um, by inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal you know, how God desires to use his word contained in the book of First Peter, to cut us to the heart, to comfort us, to counsel us, transform our worldly ways. So um, if we were to do a little author interview today, how would Peter answer the question, if he were our guest today on Mornings with Carmen, how would Peter answer the question, why did you write this book? Who is it for? Um, maybe I would ask it differently. You know, sometimes I say, hey, um, every book is written to address a particular concern or answer a particular question. So, you know, Peter, What's your why? I'm going to invite you to walk around in the book of First Peter. Like, take a tour of it with us during this Reading Through the Bible Together um, series on First Peter. Sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. Today's 
passage from First Peter is the first nine verses. So First Peter chapter one, verses one to nine. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Would you join us in reading through the Bible together? You can sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. There's a daily podcast today featuring yours truly, um, as well as Angela Smith, who's hosting the podcast um, throughout this very brief Reading Through the Bible Together series on 1 Peter. So sign up today and join us at MyFaithRadio.com. Hey, we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about the impending arrival of a hurricane in the state of Florida, what's going on there, preparing for impact. I'm also going to just, you know, ask each one of us to consider how we are actively preparing right now for the storms gathering on the horizons of our lives. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Morning again. I'm Carmen LaBerge. If you're just joining us, this is Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, it, it's Monday morning. <clears throat> so, you know, <clears throat> wakey, wakey, all those good things. Um, Paul Perot has a son named Ian. I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After whom a hurricane has been named. Well, again, I, I don't not, think it was possible directly that named. Not, no. Yeah. no. <laughs> there is a hurricane named Ian. Uh, Florida is preparing for the path of it. Um, I'm not sure it's been declared a hurricane yet this morning, but that's probably going to happen in the next few minutes. And so I'm going to go ahead and call it Hurricane Ian um, because it's going to be a doozy by the time it arrives uh, at the Florida coast. And and here's the thing. If it doesn't follow the path that is predicted, um, whatever path it's going to follow is going to be uh, a very likely direct hit to um you know, the the lower 48 of the United States. It's, it's entering the Gulf of Mexico. And so, you know, <clears throat> we we pretty much have that body of water surrounded. And so um, it provokes me to ask today, what storm is headed your way? Like as the people in Florida literally standing for hours in lines yesterday um, outside of grocery stores and like Sam's Clubs and Costco and trying to fill up on gas, people in Tampa stood in line um 
for hours yesterday just to get 10 free sandbags to use. And let me just tell you, 10 sandbags is not enough to do a whole lot other than maybe, maybe guard uh, water intrusion through your front door. So you're like, you're, you know, yeah, you're talking about minimal protection there if all you got yesterday was 10 stand- sandbags. Um, so when you think about storms and you think about the storms that are headed our way in this life, what are you doing to prepare? What can you do right now? I mean, I don't know exactly what the storm is going to be in your life um, or mine, but there are things that we could do to prepare right now, um, recognizing that storms are coming. I mean, they always are, right? There's always a storm on the horizon. So what can we do right now to prepare for the winds and the waves that are going to beat against our house and the storm surge that threatens to undermine our life? I'm, of course, referring there to Jesus's parable of the wise and the foolish builders in Matthew chapter 7. So in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Jesus says, therefore, and of course, you know me well enough now to know that when we come upon a therefore in scripture, I am going to ask the question, hey, what's that therefore, therefore? And so as we read the, um, the verses 24 to 27 that begin with the word therefore, we have to back up. In order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we've got to look back and see what Jesus has just said, the context of, uh, of this teaching at the end of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. So um, if we're thinking about uh, these verses, we say to ourselves, okay, what's the context? Well, the context is chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. That is the last chapter in, um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, in the context of the New Testament of the Bible, which is the Word of God. And so the entire chapter um, of, of this Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, is recording teachings of Jesus um, as a part of what we call the larger Sermon on the Mount. And if you walk through chapter 7, here's what you're going to find. The entire chapter is Jesus distinguishing between two types of people. Every single part of it, two types of people. So Matthew, the first, uh, Matthew 7, the first five verses, judgment of others versus the judgment of self. Verse 6, the judgment of which people deserve our time, energy, and attention, you know, described as pigs. Okay, yeah, don't, don't throw your, uh, you know, your pearls before swine. Um, verses 7 and 8, judgment of your own need and the only real source of help. So judging the character of God, verses 9 to 12, which applies the character of God to us through the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a judgment call. Verses 13 and 14, Matthew chapter 7, judgment of where and how we walk in life. You're going to go through the narrow or the wide gate. You're going to walk on the narrow or the wide path. Um, Because all of that is going to lead to a particular destination. So what's your preferred destination and how are you judging that? Verses 15 to 20, judgment of others based on the fruit of their life. Um, And then ultimately, God's judgment of the ungodly. Verses 21 to 23, again, we're still in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus' ultimate judgment of true and false disciples. Not for you and I to judge whether or not someone is a true or false disciple, but that judgment is coming and it belongs to Jesus. Which brings us to the verses in view when we talk about preparing for the, the storms of life which are coming our way, regardless of who we are. Storms are coming. Verses 24 to 27. Judgment related to where and upon whom you build your life. Therefore, if anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, 
is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a fool, foolish man, built his house on sand. Rain came down, streams rose, wind blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Friends, storms are gathering even now at the horizon of our lives. I don't know what their particular names or attributes are going to be, but we certainly know they are going to be disruptive and threatening. So how are you preparing today for the gathering storms that lie ahead? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You Familiar with the middle of the war, John Bradley. He is a retired Air Force Lieutenant General. He served as commander of the U.S. Air Force Reserve. Um, and following 41 years of distinguished service, retired, and he and his wife, now um, serve heading up the Lamia Foundation. John has joined us before with parts of a story that he now brings us um, another part of. So, John, thank you so much for being back with us here on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be with you. And and what a great lesson you just gave, given the weather that has hit eastern Canada and is approaching Florida. So it's a really perfect lesson for today. Well, thank you so much. You are um, very familiar with the um, the storms that um, that arise upon people's lives. You have um, been sharing with us the unfolding story now, you know, 13 months in the making of a particular family that were standing at the Abbey Gate on um, that terrible day when a suicide bomber um, exploded himself and um, and caused the deaths and destruction of many other lives uh, in Afghanistan. And you have uh, some good news to bring to us today. Um, share with us... Um, the progress of this story of this one particular family. Carmen, it's it's just the answer to prayers. I'm telling you, uh, as you said, 13 months of working on this after uh, the chaotic evacuations that were enveloping the Kabul airport and the suicide bombing that killed 13 American soldiers, the Marines, and uh, 160 Afghans wounded many others. There was a family there that I was trying to get evacuated. They had a letter from me to identify them. They showed this letter to the soldiers on the wall. Two of the small children of this family were taken over the wall. Then the mother, wife and mother, was taken over the wall. The suicide bombing happened. The mother was killed with those two children beside her. The father and an older son, 14 at the time, were left outside. And uh, it took eight months for us to get that father and son out of Kabul. So in April, they flew to Doha, Qatar, to the camp there. And now after five months, continuing to try to work through uh, any uh, approach I could make to the State Department, Department of Homeland Security, uh, 
whomever, they were finally flown to Washington, D.C., uh, Dulles Airport last Monday night. And I was there to welcome them along with their sister who lives in Alexandria, Virginia. She's an American citizen. And uh, the sister and, and brother's uh, parents were there. It was a wonderful reunion that is just hard to explain the emotions. Um, the story, the full story is in the Washington Post. It will be linked in the show notes today, posted at MyFaceRadio.com and wherever you um, subscribe to the podcast for this show, you'll have the link to the full article in the Washington Post related to this, which includes you know an interview with John. Um, John, let's do this. Um, tell the story. Maybe let's approach this this way. Tell the story of the little black purse, because I think that in the story of the little black purse, all the rest of the story unfolds. Oh, Zakia was the woman's name, the mother, the wife, and uh, who was tragically killed in the suicide bombing, as I said. And they, she had a, this little black purse with her at the airport, and uh, it was lost. But uh, all of the belongings of the family, they had all of their papers, the passports, everything they had, the letter I had sent, all of that was lost in the chaos uh, of the aftermath of the explosion. It wasn't until that night that uh, Wally Stenixai was able to find his wife, who had been pronounced dead. She was in a hospital outside the airport uh, that night. It was several hours later before he found her and knew that she was dead. He had no idea where the children were. The children had been the two children that had been injured along with the mother, had been taken to a medical facility on the airport by the soldiers. And uh, they were treated there and kept overnight. And then they were flown the next morning with other evacuees and other injured people, injured soldiers, Marines, to Germany to go to the big regional U.S. hospital in Germany called Landstuhl Medical Center where they were treated and where uh, they had some surgery. They stayed there for eight or nine days and then flown to the United States for care at Walter Reed Hospital for over a week uh, in the Bethesda, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. But that purse was lost and all of their belongings. Along I know, with and sister. I, you know, as I read that, um, I mean, I, as that, um, I think of those very few precious little things that people fleeing, um, you know, fleeing out of harm's way are able to, you know, clutch onto and carry with them. And this one, this one small piece of, um, of this precious person, uh, you know, was recovered and then is now lost. And I just, I've, I felt like, um, John, that was an, this small, seemingly insignificant, um, detail of the story and yet in it i think our hearts melt because we can imagine the one thing whatever it is that we might have been clutching to right that we might have been holding on to as a um, as a reminder of the precious person that's been lost to us um and we can imagine that then being lost again and so i'm just praying that you know the god who who recovers all, all people um, somehow recovers this one lost thing as well. Um, Such a, such a, a, an incredible story. Talk with us about what lies ahead for this family. Okay. I'm, I'm excited about this because they obviously are so happy to be together. They're in a small apartment in Alexandria, Virginia. 
uh, where the sister, Farishta, who I have known for several years, uh, uh, has uh, has been living with her mother and father and the two smaller children. The two small children have been in school over the last year in Alexandria. The little girl, Mina, eight years old now, <laughs> she is a ball of fire. She talks nonstop and she speaks fabulous English without an accent at eight years old. She has learned English so well in a year and she talks your ear off. She's doing well in school, as is Faisal, her uh, middle brother, the, the younger brother who's uh, 14. He's doing well in school. Mina gets up at 6.30 every morning now and gets her father, who's been with her now for one week, and takes her takes him outside the apartment building to walk around a park because she wants to, quote, show him America. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just fabulous. She is so happy to be reunited with her father. The older son is ready to start school. They have an appointment with the uh, school officials on Wednesday. He has all his, all his vaccinations. And so all three of the children will be in school. We'll be working soon to get the father, Wally, a job, and uh, he'll be allowed to work because of his status. And so we're excited about that. So the family is together. They are so happy, and they know that many prayers have gone up for them, and the prayers have been answered. Remind us quickly, John, of the role of Imran Ibrahimi, yes. and tell us oh. what's happening with him. Oh, what a good young man. He's 19 years old. Imran had gone to the airport with his family. He's a neighbor, a friend of the family. He just went there to go with him. He wasn't trying to leave. But after the explosion, when uh, he knew that the mother had been, uh, Zakia, had been killed in the explosion, he climbed over the wall. I mean, it's amazing that he lived through this because it was chaotic. There was gunfire after the explosion, and uh, no one knows the source of all the gunfire, but I imagine it was between ISIS and ISIS-K and Taliban and and uh, U.S. troops uh, who were there for security. But he jumped over the wall and got with those two children and was with them at the medical facility, told the people that he was there. He told them then that he was their brother, so so they would not send him away. They put him on the airplane the next morning with the two ch small children who were injured, and, and Imran was uninjured, and he made it to Germany. And the way we found out exactly where they were is we got a ping off of his cell phone and saw that he was next door to that hospital in Germany, Landstuhl. He was flown... Uh, a week later to Washington uh, was at the Bethesda hospital for uh, the Walter Reed hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, he is living in a home with uh, a couple of other Afghan young men. Now he has a very good job. At, he's done all the paperwork he's supposed to do legally. And he has a job at a home Depot in the Washington DC area, Falls church, exactly Falls church, Virginia. And he's doing great. And he has the best attitude and he can't wait to get back in school himself. And he's 19 years old and he needs one more year of high school. And there's a little difficulty with his age on that apparently. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to work through that so he can go on to college. His father was a college professor at Kabul university. His sister mm -hmm. was lawyer is a lawyer. 
in Afghanistan in Kabul. So it's an educated family. He wants to get a college education, but he's working hard and taking care of himself and doing well. Mm, I love that. He's I the love, hero um, in and, thing. He is the hero yeah, in this. He is the hero, and 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 my heart goes out to him because he's separated from his family as well, and now yes. you know, if, if forging ahead positively. But um, but my heart, you know, my heart breaks for uh, for him in terms yeah. of um, being separated from his family and for his family, you know, who are not coming here. And so I just you know lift up all of that as a part of this conversation as well, John. Um, what a gift, what a gift to, you know, sort of have this part of the rest of the story. Um, we're going to want to know more in the future, but thank you so much for bringing us this very good news update today. Thank you. It's the best news I've had in a year, Carmen. It's, thank it's, you for covering the story so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, remember, you guys can connect with John and um, the Lamia Foundation at Lamia, L-A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. Um, I am going to um, put the link to the story in the Washington Post, which unpacks more of um, of this story for you in today's show notes. So grab those later at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. John Bradley, um, we look forward to having you back again with more of uh, this wonderful good news story. Let's take a break right now and have Upwards with Max Lucado. All right, when we think about all that is going on um, in the world and here in the United States of America, um, we like to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. And several of you have asked about this term, Christ- Christian nationalism. And what, you know, what are the variety of things that are meant by it when we hear it in the press? Um, what do you mean when you use the term, if you ever do? When you hear that a candidate for a particular office is identified as a Christian nationalist, um, you know, what might you think about that? What should you think? What, you know, what is the press hoping you're going to think? Um, we're going to talk about all of that next with Daniel Bennett. Um, we're also going to ask Daniel about the addition going on his house. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining us now, Daniel Bennett. You know him from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Hey, good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. All right, if we were, like, legit sitting down and having coffee together, I would be asking you... So what is the addition that is going to be attached to your house? So we're adding a bedroom, like a master suite and a uh, sun porch to give us some more space where we can enjoy the outside without actually being outside in the oppressive uh, Arkansas summers. All right. No, I just appreciate, you know, that every once in a while we have like a human conversation in addition to, you know. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for. um, So, yeah. So the reason that I know about this, uh, y'all, is I follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel R. Ben with two N's for Bennett, because that's the middle of his last name, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. So Daniel R. Ben. um, And there are these progressive pictures of the back of the house where, you know, at one point there is this like small uh, kind of porte and then there is not one. And you can see yeah. that there's evidence of something happening. And so that's kind of fun. So thank you for sharing It'll, that. 
it'll be fun to track, I think, over the yeah. next few months. Totally. Absolutely. I love I love progress on on home yep. projects. People people who follow me on social media, particularly on Facebook, know that, you know, I like to, <laughs> I like to post uh, uh, Facebook live videos about the progress on the three story wildlife observation deck, also known as a hunting blind on the back of our property, which is quite now deluxe, has air conditioning and everything. I mean, it's crazy. Jeez. I mean, my husband like studied like solar because it's way, way hey. off. Where, where you know from our house and so he like studied he's like i need i'm gonna need some solar energy down there so he like figured it out he like built My a goodness. whole solar array i know it's crazy okay so he can come and help if you need him <clears throat> um, i great. hire him out yeah um christian nationalism when we hear this term when we see this term particularly as applied when it's applied to um a candidate for an office which you know i just hear it a lot now i hear this term a yeah. lot thrown around a lot what is meant when it is used, or what are what are the variety of things that are meant when it's used? Okay, buckle up, because okay. you're right. This term this term has just exploded in the past few years, and a lot of it has to do with renewed or I don't know. It's entirely new, but maybe refocused academic attention to this this phenomenon that uh, a couple of sociologists, uh, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry. Uh, wrote about in a book, Taking America Back for God is the name of the book. And as far as academic books go, it was really, really popular, got a lot of attention. And it kind of got the popular focus onto this idea that uh, called Christian nationalism. Now, the authors have a really specific definition for it. It's basically uh, a certain level of agreement with statements on surveys and survey questions. Uh, And there's all sorts of critiques about uh, you know, whether these questions are actually adequate measures of this phenomenon of Christian nationalism. Um, so there's an academic conversation on the one hand, right? Uh, and we can talk about that if you want. But more popularly, I think Christian nationalism, like a lot of terms in American politics, I think socialist is a good example of this or Marxist or something. It takes on, it covers a multitude of behaviors. And so what Christian nationalism kind of has evolved to, at least in my reading of it, uh, in the American context, it, it's gone from this kind of like narrow academic definition of you agree with certain levels of these, you know, cert, uh, you agree to a certain level with these survey questions and survey answers uh, to now maybe you just think the United States uh, should have more religion in public life. Uh, maybe you think that uh, Christianity should should help guide public policy or elected officials should rely on their Christian faith when making public policy. Now, this isn't a particularly new idea. I think, uh, you know, for most of American history, we would say that religion was seen as a driver of public policy. At least some people thought it should be. Uh, But now in a particularly polarized time, those types of statements are are seen as more controversial. And the last thing I'll say until, you know, you you can follow up if you want. Uh, Candidates now, especially on the right, are embracing this term. They're seeing it kind of like, well, we're just going to take this back. So you have candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia and Lauren Boebert in Colorado who are now identifying as Christian nationalists. I think they would mean very different things than the academic literature on it. But they're seeing this as an opportunity to kind of take this term back and make it more of a positive thing, simply saying that, well, we don't want to necessarily establish a Christian government, theocratic government, but we do think Christianity should inform public policy. So it's a long conversation, but it does show just how malleable some of these terms are. 
So I, I think it's really helpful to unpack this because I think I need a working definition of it for myself. I also need, need to be equipped to ask the question when I hear the term used, um, what do you mean when you when you say that? Um, because I, it's a little bit like the, the term evangelical today, right? Mm. It, depending yep. whose mouth you find that word in. Um, it is, you know, I claim it as this, you know, positive description of my desire yep. for people to know Jesus um, as the way and the truth and the life. I mean, the very good news. <laughs> um, other people use it as a pejorative term, right. um, at, you know, as if evangelical is um, uh, like Christian jihadism. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really a negative term when used by some people. So I have learned to ask the question, when someone uses the term evangelical, I have I have learned to ask the question, what and who do you mean when you use that term? And I yeah, think the could, same applies yeah, to this kind of well to this kind of language. When someone is described as a Christian nationalist, um, I feel now obligated to ask, okay, what do you mean when you use that term and apply it to that person? Yeah, because you're going to get a very different answer depending on who you're who you're talking to. If you're talking to uh, someone who's, you know, maybe more critical of, of religion and public life, they're going to be using that term like you indicated in a more pejorative or uh, problematic way. Whereas if you're talking to someone who uh, is on maybe more on the right and, and maybe certainly would identify as Christian, then they're going to see this maybe as a positive description on how they view their their activities in, in the public square. Um, maybe almost seeing it as like, yeah, we've been too passive. We need to get more aggressive and more active in this way. Um, I, there, so if you identify as a Christian nationalist, odds are you're not suggesting that the United States government endorse and adopt Christianity as the official religion of the United States. Although you showed me a poll recently that <laughs> said maybe some people believe otherwise. But the vast majority of folks don't necessarily believe this, especially when you drill down past those initial questions. So you're right. This is, I mean, you wrote a book about this. Conversations, you know, matter a lot. And that's another good example why. Yeah, I think that's um, that's really helpful. So if you were to check out Politico, um, they they have this new polling that shows there is an appeal to the Christian nationalist message, which is one of the reasons um, I think it's important for us to talk about this, depending on um, political affiliation. There are those who um, who believe that the United States was founded as a, quote, white Christian nation, um, and they see no distinction between nor nor necessity of distinction between church and state um, and would advocate that um, uh, that Christian Christianity um, should actually like be the national religion. And so when when we talk about these things, we're talking about people who are really our neighbors, who really genuinely um, think things that are not true historically and yeah. things that as Christians we probably ought not be advocating for. I mean, we we I don't advocate for um, the United States of America being having a theocratic government where I expect everyone Christians and non-Christians alike to behave like Christians. I mean, I think it's foolishness yeah. to expect people who aren't Christians to behave like Christians. Yeah, I think uh, we've seen, you know, historical examples that when the state uh, endorses or 
establishes churches uh, that doesn't go well, not only for religious minorities, but also for those uh, members of the church. Look across look across Western Europe and you'll see mm-hmm. just the decline of religiosity and the increase of secularization. Um, so there is a lot to be said for the religious marketplace that we have without a established church. But on the other hand, too, just speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, the gospel is not meant to be applied via coercion, right? And it can't flourish in that type of an environment where it's expected that you have to, you know, sign on to these certain principles to maybe, I don't know, uh, qualify for certain levels of of public uh, participation or whatever it might be. Um, Again, Mark David Hall wrote a really good book uh, about this, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Um, and he's sympathetic. He's very critical, rather, of cr- this this usage of Christian nationalism. He's really critical of of how it's measured, uh, what it covers supposedly as as Christian nationalist activities. But Mark also doesn't think, and he he brings the receipts to back it up, that we were not founded as a Christian nation. He says that, and I think persuasively. There is no doubt that that the founders and the framers were heavily influenced by Christian thought. They would have grown up in this type of an environment where virtually everyone in their communities were Christian and they knew the Bible, they read it, they knew the language. But that's a big difference. That's a big departure, right, from saying, well, they intended the government just to serve and establish Christianity. So, again, nuance matters. It's a good example. That's a really good example. Okay, that's super helpful. All right, let's take a very brief pause. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about the president of the United States, um, Joe Biden, rebuking Senator Lindsey Graham over a bill to limit abortion um, to the first trimester or the first 15 weeks. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at MyFaithRadio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show. Again, thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. He uh, posts on Substack at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Um, let's talk about the president of the United States rebuking a sitting senator, Lindsey Graham, over a bill to limit abortion um, via, uh, you know, a federal law. Talk with us about what Graham has proposed and what the president has said about Graham's proposal. Yeah. So uh, Lindsey Graham uh, has a bill that he's, he's proposed in the United States Senate that would essentially limit and prohibit abortion after uh, 15 weeks of uh, pregnancy. And, uh, you know, this is now uh, prior to Roe v. Wade, this law would have been, you know, seen as kind of a a, a non-starter, right, because of the constitutional right to abortion. But after Dobbs, which repealed Roe v. Wade, um, 
it's now open season for states and governments to rethink uh, their their limits and regulations on abortion. And so this is the real this is really the first, uh, I guess, federal effort, at least as, as far as uh, bills go, to rethink federal abortion policy. Um, Lindsey Graham, seen as kind of a uh, a bridge builder, or at least he has a reputation of doing that in the Senate. He's at one point was really uh, interested in pursuing immigration legislation. He's voted for uh, Democratic president, Supreme Court justices in the past. So he's not like a typical Republican senator, or at least he didn't have that record for a long time. And so it is interesting that it's coming from him and not someone like, say, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, maybe someone who'd be running for president in 2024. Nevertheless, uh, President Biden has uh, come out and, and was, was harshly critical of this bill. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but the biggest thing I can the biggest thing I keep coming back to with all this is just the transformation that Joe Biden has gone through um, as a politician over the last 20 or 30 years on abortion specifically um, to the point now where he is essentially attacking this bill as an attack on women's rights um, when his previous rhetoric on abortion was a lot more tempered than that. And it just shows uh, how the politicization of abortion and the polarization on this issue has essentially captured elected officials on both parties. All right. And to be clear, the president of the United States was wrong when yeah, he oh, said yeah. that Lindsey Graham's proposal has no exceptions for rape or incest um, oh, yeah. or, or age. Like he's wrong about all of that. Um, he's also wrong when he says that um, his church, the Roman Catholic Church, does not argue for something similar to what Lindsey Graham is arguing for. Um he, you know, he he rebukes his own Roman Catholicism, even though he says he's a practicing Roman Catholic. This is one of the more interesting um, conversations at the intersection of sort of our own self-identified version of a faith and what, in reality, a particular organized church says about itself. Yeah, and you see this with a lot of Democratic politicians uh, who identify as Catholic. Um, of course, Catholic Church still heavily influential uh, in, in American politics, at least in terms of high-ranking officials who identify as Catholic. Um, earlier this summer, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, came out that her, or I guess it was the Archdiocese in San Francisco, essentially made a decision that she shouldn't be given communion um, because of her support for abortion. Abortion rights. I, I might be butchering the details in that a little bit. No, oh, you got it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and, and so, but, but we see this, right, where there's this disconnect between the official teachings of the church on abortion, which is unequivocal, right, <laughs> that abortion is this mortal, grave sin. And then for, for political reasons, you know, trying to say, well, you know, I believe that, but I don't think we should put it into public policy. And in fact, because of that, we think abortion should now be uh, legal up to the point of birth. Uh, which is essentially what Joe Biden's position is now, which is just wild considering his past 20 or 30 years in office. Um, so, yes, uh, th that's a major conversation worth having. Abortion is not the only issue where we see this in public policy and disconnect between religion and, and, and public policy, but it's definitely the most visible and, and certainly the most contentious. Okay, I um I want to give you a couple of minutes um to talk about your Constitution Day lecture at Union University and you guys can read this on the Uneasy Citizenship blog which is at danielbennett.substack.com Judicial Legitimacy and the Future of the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, thanks. It was my first visit to Union. Uh, really, really neat campus. They're celebrating their 200th year this year, which is just remarkable uh, for for, a, for an institution of higher education. So, uh, great campus, good good students, good faculty. Um, yeah, so the talk was on judicial legitimacy, which is basically how much clout and how much support does the do the courts have in American politics. And historically, the courts have had a great deal of public approval relative to the other branches of government. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that not many people know too much about the courts. And so they kind of just default to, yeah, they're probably doing a good job. That's fine. Hate Congress. I don't like the president, but the courts, yeah, they're just kind of doing their thing. So I'll support them. Um, but then there's this question of if they don't have this support, how much power do the courts actually have? Because uh, in Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote that the courts don't have the power of the purse to spend money, which is what Congress has, the power of the sword uh, to basically you know, direct the military, which is what the, presidents have, the president has. Uh, the courts have the power of merely judgment, basically to render decisions that, Im- importantly, have to be enforced and respected by the other branches of government. And so more so than any other branch, uh, the court has to be concerned with the legitimacy of its decisions. If it starts to issue decisions that are way outside the mainstream of public opinion and uh, political thought, there's no guarantee that the other branches have to go along with those decisions. And so we saw some of this language following the Dobbs case in June that overturned Roe with critics of the decision blasting it as a judicially illegitimate decision and essentially saying, you know, this court has lost its legitimacy and and waded into and it has increasingly waded into more explicitly political or partisan decisions. Um, And so in the talk, I basically kind of gave the history of these abortion cases, why it led us to this moment. I talked about some of the reasons for why there were these critiques of judicial illegitimacy and then talk about where we go from here. I'll just spoil it. Uh, I think, you know, even if we are in a crisis of judicial legitimacy, it's not the end of the world. All right. People can be critical of the branches of government without us falling into a constitutional crisis. Um, And this is not the only case where we've seen, by the way. A court's decision be blasted as illegitimate. We've seen this in any number of historically contested cases, including a Burgerfell v. Hodges, which legalized mm-hmm. same-sex marriage in 2015. Uh, so this isn't the first time we've seen this, uh, but it is the most recent, probably the most visceral. Um, and so this is, by the way, and I know I'm going on here, The uh, this is why someone like Chief Justice John Roberts has such a difficult job and why he's been critiqued by many people on the right Uh, that he is so concerned with judicial legitimacy that he's trying to be more of an incrementalist on a lot of these cases, kind of going baby steps towards certain outcomes rather than just going full bore and, uh, you know, making decisions that would upset the apple cart, so to speak. So that's a long answer, um, but there's a lot of discussion about judicial legitimacy these days. Spoiler alert, I think we're going to be okay in terms of the Supreme Court. I do, too. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, um, we don't have time to talk about it today, but you guys got to check out um, Daniel's piece at ChristianityToday.com, what Christian colleges can glean from the Supreme Court's yeshiva case. Um, And we think it's, uh, well, I don't know. Does it look like bad news for evangelical higher education? I don't think so. All right. So there you go. It's probably probably good news. All right. Daniel Bennett, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, What a delight. Um, Blessings uh, blessings on your day. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, friends, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. 
we're gonna talk um, we're gonna talk about what is supreme in terms of what is above so when you think of what is supreme and what is above what comes to mind Semper Supra would be the lingo that the the language that's Latin for always above who or what is always above you give that um, a moment's thought in terms of um, where we look for help is our help going to come from the hills or is the help going to come from the Lord our God is it going to come from the skies is it going to come from space or is it going to come from the Lord our God what is Semper Supra that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.